Here at Waterstone, we focus on living and loving like Jesus. In practice, this means that we connect with one another, engage in justice, and serve sacrificially. We are so glad that you're here and invite you to join us in person. If you're able to attend weekend services, we gather on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays in person and online at 10. We look forward to connecting with you. We want to welcome in our online audience watching, and if you're watching from across the country, we want you to know that it has stopped raining in Colorado. And uh, yeah, the, the ARC building has uh, take, hit, hit a pause. So it's good to see all of you this morning. When Jesus came preaching, his first words recorded in the Gospel of Mark went like this, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. The meaning is clear. Jesus is saying, because I am here, you must change your approach to life entirely. The kingdom of God is now the foundational truth of existence. It's the definition of reality. It's the reason you exist. The rule and the reign of God now in the person of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe. Now, the last few weeks, we've been taking a fresh dive into this framework of the kingdom by talking about the main way Jesus talked about the kingdom. And that was through these short stories you've just heard. They're called parables. These are provocative, troubling, opaque stories that Jesus told to describe what it's like to live in the kingdom of God. And so today I thought fitting that we not only continue our series and get another uh, ray of of, uh, beauty and color on the kingdom of God, but also because our vacation Bible school week was called Treasure Island, it's appropriate that we have a treasure story this morning. So here's the story. It's in Matthew chapter 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again, and then in his joy, he went and sold all he had and bought that field. Again, twin parable. The kingdom of God is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. And when he found one of great value, he went away and sold everything he had and bought it. The word of the Lord Now, we ask first, how likely is this? Did this kind of thing ever happen? And the answer is it was not uncommon. In those days, uh, money was a medium of exchange. It was not a commodity. That is, in their economic system in the ancient world, there was, was no banks to help your money make money. Your responsibility was the money and keeping it safe. And so it was very common to bury your treasure to market. And then it was also very common when the vicissitudes of life come through and the the field suddenly changes hands, whether a marauding army comes or the owner dies, uh, all of a sudden the field is in question. And um, Jewish law was very clear, finders keepers, But Roman law was ambiguous, and Jews were under Roman occupation. So really, the only safe way to get that treasure was to buy the field. 
Now, you can imagine what people in the town were thinking. What? You're going to buy that stony lot on the edge of town with nothing on it? And you're crazy. But the farmer is smiling because he knows what they don't, that under that field is a treasure unbelievable. Then there's the pearl. A merchant specializes in gems. You need to understand that pearls in the ancient world were what diamonds are in our world, like the most valuable possession. And there's a story told of Cleopatra who had a, a pearl worth 25 million denarii, which in our economic system would be $4 billion. It was valuable. Well, this guy stumbles across a big one, and it's his life pearl. And he sells, uh, every, he sell, he sells his Rolling Stone album collection. <laughs> he sells his Honus Wagner baseball card worth $6 million. Google it. He sells everything, everything to get the biggest pearl of his life. Why? What is so valuable about the kingdom of God that Jesus says the kingdom is treasure that's worth selling everything you have to get? Why is the kingdom valuable? Well, I'd like to suggest at least three answers to that question. The first is this, the kingdom of God is valuable and worth everything you have because there's a king. His name from the earliest days of the church has been Jesus Christ. Actually, only one of those is a name, right? You remember that, that Jesus in the Hebrew was Joshua, and it means God who saves. But the word Christ or Messiah in the Hebrew uh, means anointed one. And an anointed one was like a king who was anointed to rule and to reign. And so when we say the name Jesus Christ, we're actually saying the name God saves, but the king who rules. It's a name with a title. And this Jesus King is like no other king because this Jesus King was born even though he already existed. He is actually the second person of the Trinity, co-equal, co-eternal with God the Father in the Trinity of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, which means this King, Jesus Christ, was active and present in creation. He is maker of heaven and earth. This king is active and present in providence. He is the sovereign ruler of history. This king, at the end of the age, when he comes again, will be the focus and the center. It says in the letter to the Philippians, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. This Jesus past, present, future rules, which is why, though the church calls him Jesus Christ, Jesus King, Jesus himself, whenever he wanted to refer to himself in the third person, his favorite, most common way to talk about himself was with a title that he said, the Son of Man. Now, when we hear the Son of Man, we often think, oh, of course, what Jesus is talking about is that he's God become flesh and he's referring to his humanity. Oh no, he chose to call himself the son of man for a very specific reason, actually from a very specific text. Here it is, it's in Daniel chapter seven. This is why Jesus calls himself the son of man. 
In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days and was led into His presence. Here's the Son of Man. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped Him. His dominion, the Son of Man, is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and His kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now you, if you've read the book of Daniel recently in the, the First Testament, you'll understand that Daniel is a book of kings. It's the game of thrones, right? There are more kings in Daniel than in a deck of cards. There's Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Darius, uh, uh, Cyrus, Xerxes, and I could go on. It's a, it's a book about men who wore crowns and tunics and were the most powerful men in the world at their time. And all of a sudden, into Daniel, who, who watched this firsthand from several different administrations, breaks into his dream life and gives him this vision, wait, there's kings, and you know these kings, and there's the king of kings, the son of man. What makes Jesus the unique king, the son of man? Well, not only his divine nature, but it also because of his divine nature, he's the only king <laughs> that has walked out of his grave by his own power. I remember reading several years ago, you probably might remember this, that all England was abuzz with a great discovery they discovered the bones of King Richard III in a parking lot in London. Whoopee. <laughs> this king walked out of his grave, his bones never to be found. This king has the power, because of his own resurrection, to raise the dead. And all who follow him will follow him in resurrection. And this is what threatens our cultures and our empires. This is a threat because human kings could do many things, but they cannot raise the dead. That's the Son of Man. That's Jesus. And that's why Jesus, proclaimed as king, is a threat to every empire, including our own. This is a king like no other. I, I love theater. I love the stage. One of my favorite plays is by Oscar Wilde. It's about John the Baptist, and it's called Salome. And there's a scene in Salome. I've shared this with you before, but I have an extra bonus treat today. In that movie, it portrays one of the great tyrants of the ancient world, Herod. And Herod is pacing the floor on the, it's the stage because he's heard that there's this guy walking around who can raise the dead, and he finds out it's Jesus of Nazareth. And then Herod says these words, I wish no one to raise the dead. I forbid him to raise the dead. I want him to be found and told that I forbid him to raise the dead. That's the power struggle, right, of those blustering tyrants who think that the world is run by wealth and by power and by unscrupulous political maneuver. And then there's one who can raise the dead, who rules. Here's the bonus. The next line after that scene is this from Oscar Wilde. Where is this man, demands Herod. 
He's in every place, my Lord, replies the courtier, but it's hard to find him. (laughs) That's because Jesus is subversive and he works through people like you and me. And now we go to the second reason that the kingdom of God is valuable. The first is because there's a king, Jesus, son of man. The second reason is that this Jesus is leading a kingdom. And this kingdom, and this is the surprise of the resurrection, totally surprised the Jews, is that they believed in a resurrection at the end of time. But this Jesus came back in the middle of time and started a following that everyone who follows him, now there's a colony of heaven on earth bringing the life of heaven to earth. That's the church. That's us. We're part of God's kingdom. We're the primary theater where the main efforts of the kingdom are happening are in his church through lives like yours and mine. It's an amazing thing to think about King Jesus ruling history. And let's do it for just a minute, shall we? I think there's a part of his ruling that we think through history. And if you read history, there are certain moments when you realize just how fragile history is, and there's got to be some hands holding it. I remember reading uh, David McCullough's magisterial biography of Harry Truman. And in the late 1950s, when the Korean conflict, let's call it what it was, a war, was, was happening, Red China was pouring thousands and thousands of soldiers into North Korea. And there was the loudest voice in the Truman administration from the general side. You may have heard of him, General Douglas MacArthur. He was the supreme commander of the Pacific Fleet. And every day he was calling up the Truman administration and saying, look, you've got to use the atomic bombs. I've identified 30 to 50 cities in China and you're going to drop a bomb on every one of those cities. Can you imagine if that would have happened? McCullough makes the point, almost in passing, that after Truman prayed, he decided he would not drop 30 to 50 atomic bombs on China. And you think, wow, history is fragile, but someone's holding it. You think that on a broad scale, you also think the times that it's preventative, you think of times when it's redemptive. Yesterday, perhaps some of you heard, they interviewed a a writer named Barbara Butcher who used to be the death investigator for the city of New York. Her interview at 10 minutes was amazing. I look forward to reading her book. But in there she describes that one of her assignments during her tenure as the death investigator for New York City was 9-11 and the rubble of the Twin Towers. And my apologies for some of the graphic here, but what she's going through and digging through the rubble is trying to find pieces of people uh, to identify them. And she said at first, all her team, they were just so overwhelmed so overcome by the devastation and the magnitude of evil. But then she says, what kept them going day after day is they began not only to find pieces of people, but they began to find pieces of their story, a golf ball that someone had won as a souvenir from a tournament or a a picture that sat on their shelf in their office or a, a desk calendar back in the day when you would still write things on your calendar. And they began to pick pieces of people's lives together. And Barbara Butcher says it's because we wanted to honor the families and love them well. 
There it is, right? In the absolute, like one of the worst days of our own history, there's the image of God in a person, in a team, trying to love and honor families well. History's fragile, but someone's holding it. That's true on a magnitude. It's true in our individual lives as we are the kingdom of God walking through this world. In fact, in Hebrews chapter 6, there's this great metaphor I want to share briefly about how because of Jesus' death and resurrection, he becomes the, uh, uh, quote, Hebrews 6, the anchor of our soul. Isn't that a powerful metaphor? Think about it for just a moment, an anchor. What's an anchor? First, it's something that holds on to you. You're in the vessel, it's down below, but there's a chain, and it's holding you from, and protecting you from the currents and from the storms, from the waves and the wind. You're held. But the second part of that metaphor is about the anchor is able to go where we can't, to the, to the bottom to the permanence. What an anchor does is lodges in the rocks and then sends the permanence of that rock through the chain up to the vessel. It holds us permanently. That's the value of an anchor. And we need an anchor, right? We need an anchor. Why? Because life is change. The currents are always moving. The wind is always blowing. The trees are coming down. The mountains are grinding down. The suns are going out. I mean, it's all about change. And we need a permanence. We need an anchor to hold us when everything in our lives is change. I remember uh, I was a big fan in the time of Garrison Keillor. And I remember him telling a story about one time he uh, watched a... um, a documentary on doctors on uh, PBS. And uh, he said how discouraged he was after watching it because it showed these doctors, you know, in their little groups rocking room to room and they rocked into room 548. And the doctor says, the patient in 548 died this morning. The procedure didn't work. And then he said, who has the paperwork for room 540? And off they went. And Garrison Keillor said, my goodness, I mean, if I was the patient in 548, I would have wanted the doctor to cry. I would have wondered, wanted him to say, man, I am so moved that this patient died that I'm going to take the rest of the day off. But no. The only way to kind of deal with that kind of change day after day is to harden yourself towards it. But Karis and Keeler makes the point that deep down we all want that sense of permanence to know that in the changing places constantly in our lives, there's someone holding on to us and that we can hold on to. It's kind of like the reason that many of us get married, right? We want someone who on the day we die will cry and want to take the rest of the day off. (laughs) But here's the problem. The reason they're crying and taking the day off is that you're gone. You're gone. Our heart yearns for some sense of permanent in a changing world. And I wonder if the reason we want that permanence is because we are made by the only one who can give it. The kingdom is valuable because there's a king. The kingdom is valuable is because he leads a kingdom directing history and directing your life. And thirdly, the kingdom is valuable because it's growing in us. It's not just all out there. God brings his kingdom 
when we say, Jesus, I'm yours, when we get, become, uh, make a decision to follow Jesus, he invades our life. And he begins to change us from the inside out. It's one of the unique features of Christianity is that it just can change a heart like nothing else can. Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. He describes it this way. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love Him. These are the things God has revealed to us by His Spirit who searches all things, even the deep things of God. He's searching the deep things of God in us, and His power is at work in us. 1 Corinthians 4.20 talks about the kingdom of God is not talk. It's power. It's change. He moves into our lives and begins to rebuild us. No one has described this better than C.S. Lewis. He describes it this way, and feel free to laugh. You have to laugh. Imagine yourself as a living house, which is one of the metaphors of what the church is in the New Testament. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right and stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew those jobs needed doing, and so you were not surprised. <laughs> but presently he starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one you thought of, throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were going to be made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace where he will live in you, a palace. You know, we often come to God in a crisis. And hear me, there's nothing wrong with that. We all kind of come to God in a crisis of some sort. But we don't stay there. If you do stay there, that's a very unhealthy relationship. If you're in a relationship with any person, they wouldn't stay with you if all you expected from them was to get, 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 get. That's often why we first come to God. We need help. We need something. Get. There's nothing wrong with starting there, but you can't stay there. At some point, it's all about loving back and giving back. But we all come to God like with this get, We're like, Jesus, oh my goodness, help me pass the real estate exam. Or help me pass finals. Or God, I, I come, I'm in an existential crisis. Whatever it is, we come to God in a crisis. And at first, you know, it starts out really well, but then... God begins to ask like, oh, there's much bigger things than getting your real estate license that I'm going to do in your life. Much bigger things. And he begins to build a palace for his presence in us. The kingdom of God is valuable, worth everything you have because it has a king and a kingdom in you. It's valuable. So, we sell out. We give up everything in response to the value of the treasure. If you look at the twin stories, it's almost identical language in both stories. Sold all he had, sold everything he had. Now, when we, again, when we first come to Jesus, we don't really have a sense of what all and everything mean, do we? But as we grow and walk with Jesus, all and everything get more challenging by the week sometimes, all and everything. Where we might want this, but we know because we're in God's kingdom, we choose Jesus. We might want that, 
but we choose Jesus. We sell out everything, unconditional surrender. Why? Well, simply this. You're a Christian if you understand that you've entered into a relationship with King Jesus that's more than just a degree or a quantity, right? Being a Christian does not mean that you attend church five more times in addition to Christmas and Easter. Being a Christian does not mean, well, I'll give five minutes a day to reading my Bible. Being a Christian does not mean I'll give more money to the church. Being a Christian does not mean I'll do this good and that good. No. Becoming a Christian is not a change in quantity. It's a change in dimension. It's leaving the kingdom of darkness and entering the kingdom of light. It's leaving a kingdom of self-sovereignty and entering a kingdom of God's sovereignty. He's in charge. It is a whole new reality. That's why the scripture uses terms like you're born again. Or Paul says you're a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You are a new creature when we become a Christian. And that means everything and every part of our life is submitted. It's submitted to the kingship of Jesus. And now I, I got to say, that's where a big rub now is more and more in our growing secular culture. Moderns look at this. Let's take the Bible, for example. We here at Waterstone, our church believes that the scriptures, we have a very high view of them. We believe they're actually the voice of God. We believe that they're inspired by Him. And the scriptures themselves make those claims that this is God's will and God's way and God's voice. And so we elevate them as the authority. Jesus rules his church through scripture. It's his primary way of communicating. And so we have this high view of scripture. So when we come to scripture, now as a new creature in God's kingdom, we come and we say, well, whatever scripture says, properly interpreted, is what I do. It's not and it, again, this is where it gets sharp for our modern culture, because modern cultures might read uh, today and say, well, there's some good things in the Bible, and there's no question in history, it's, it's been influential. But all that stuff about this, all that stuff about that, I, I can't, 50% of it works for me. The other 50, and you put any percentages on it, you could say 98% of it, I believe. The other 2%, eh, different men, different time. Or you could say 99% of it, I believe. But that one verse, oh, I'm glad you brought that up. Because now we're talking about which chairs we're going to sit in and which kingdom you're going to be a part of. Because if that one verse, my question to you is, and I would ask you this, on what basis are you making that decision about that one verse? You're either making it one of two ways. You're either saying that Scripture is the evaluative authority over my reason and my experience, and you submit. Or you're saying that your reason and your experience is the authority over even that one verse of Scripture. Those are the choices. How do you make that decision? If Scripture is our authority, then over here in this chair, I want to speak a word of encouragement. As you read the Bible, 
there will be things that you hate, (laughs) that you don't like, that chafe against you. And I would put it strongly as this. If there's not things in the Bible that you don't like and that chafe against you, one, you're not reading it. Two, you're sitting in this chair over here, possibly, and saying, my reason, my experience, my palate, my, my um, you know, that's so primitive. I, I just can't go there. Over here, you're saying, I hate those things. I might even disagree with them. But because I'm in a kingdom and there's a king, I submit. I submit my money. I submit my sexuality. I submit my work. I submit my gender. I submit everything to what the king says through his scripture. There's a king and a kingdom and an authority. We surrender all to that authority. That's a Christian. Now, the kingdom is valuable and we give everything we have to submit to it. What brings those together In the text, it says, when the guy finds the treasure in the field, most important words, right? With joy, he goes and sells everything he has. Joy is what brings the value and the surrender together. Joy. It's joy. It's joy that becomes the engine of change. He doesn't sacrifice first and then finds joy. He finds the treasure. Joy. And then he sells everything he has because he has joy. What's joy? What's joy? Cognitive psychologists tell us that joy is not an emotion. There's emotion that comes from being joyful, but joy itself is not an emotion. What joy is, is a framework for looking at the world. The New Testament writers This was their spin on it. They said that there are bound to come some trouble into your life. Some of you are sitting in chairs this morning where you are experiencing this firsthand. You're in trouble. Life has changed. Hard things have entered. Between those things and then how you're going to choose to respond to the hard things, in the middle between the things and the choices is this thing we call joy. How are you going to respond to the hard things? Joy brings those together. And joy makes a framework from which decisions come, how you're going to navigate the troubles in your life. And the New Testament writers talk about this joy being things like a cross, where Jesus paid for our sins, where it's through weakness and self-sacrifice that love enters and moves through the world. Where an empty tomb is where ultimately all decisions are made from the perspective of eternity. Because that is the promise. Between the hard things and our choices are this promise of joy to us. That we have a cross and that we have an empty grave. That's the joy. Joy. Now, let me put it this way. Is something that costs $500 expensive? Depends what it is, right? If it's a pork chop, that's too much. <laughs> if it's a Porsche, I'm going to be back in an hour with 500 bucks and I'm going to buy that Porsche. Uh, maybe five minutes. 
Okay? When it comes to the value of the kingdom of God and the surrender to get it, what do we get? Romans chapter 8, verse 18, Paul describes it this way. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. That's our joy. That's our center between the hard things and how we respond right there is we are promised a future glory that invades the present right now to, 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 to make up our minds that whatever happens here, it's not the last word. Paul says, I reckon or I consider. It's a discipline. I think about this. When hard times come, I think that one day everything sad is going to come untrue, as Tolkien said. That one day there will be no more tears. That one day we'll be in the presence of God. That one day I'll be healed. One day is in the middle between the bad things and how we respond. It's the joy. It's the joy of knowing that that is the promise not worthy of comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. That's the joy. So what's a joyful church look like? Well, let me just think about that for a minute. A joyful church. A joyful church is a church that's not focused on building, i.e. building or growing large, you know, whatever God wants to do, but that's not what drives them. A growing church is not focused, or a, a, a joyful church is not focused on being the kind of church that says that you're never going to have trouble in your life, and we just don't talk about those things. And we're, a joyful church is not the kind of church that says, well, if you give enough money or if you live a certain way, you won't have. Uh-uh. A joyful church is a church that looks at the cross and the empty tomb straight away and puts that in the middle of everything. A joyful church is not a church that's gonna harbor you know, your political party or that political party. Jesus challenges every political party. We put the cross and the empty tomb right in the middle. Waterstone desires to be the kind of church that factors every experience of your life through the cross and through the empty grave. Waterstone desires to be the kind of church that when we gather on a morning like this, someone might shout, even randomly, He is risen, and everyone else in the seats would say, And then someone starts praying, and then someone starts pleading, and then someone starts shouting, and then someone starts singing, and then someone starts healing, and then someone starts running because that's what they did when they saw the empty two, and everyone was running everywhere. We soak in the joy of the cross and the empty grave. And that is our interpretive grid for everything that enters our lives, the joy of the cross and the empty grave. But then we don't just soak in it here, we seep in it out there. So on Monday, tomorrow's Juneteenth, we go out and we say, he is risen. And we go out and share the gospel with people of every tribe and language and tongue and nation, whether through our giving, whether through our prayers for our missions programs and our local outreaches, whether through, you know, our neighbors, we liquidate our reputation to talk about Jesus in a conversation because we're sold out for the kingdom. That's He is risen on Monday. He is risen on Tuesday. 
We go out to Giving Heart, where this coming weekend we're going to be down there uh, painting and building, you know, restrooms and every Giving Heart was uh, led by a couple out of Waterstone. It's on South Broadway, and they minister to the homeless who live on the RTD rails and come in, and they'll come in and get a shower and job skills and worship and a good meal. Tuesdays and Thursdays. Well, they were a partner with Waterstone, and this weekend there's a group of men, and talk to Josh Bragg, our men's ministry, go on our website. We need some men to go there this weekend to paint walls and, and encourage this ministry. Why? Because he's risen. Wednesday, we go to Joshua Station in a few weeks. You may not know this, but we're actually doing two vacation Bible schools this summer. The second one we're doing down at Joshua Station, which is right across the street from where the Broncos play football, and I don't know what it's called anymore, but it's, it's, the real action is happening across the street in Joshua Station where single moms and families are coming off the streets and they're getting their life rebuilt. And Waterstone takes meals down there. And oh, I forgot to, we're going down to do a vacation Bible school for them. And you can talk to our children's ministry team. They're on the website and find out how you can help do VBS at Joshua Season. On Thursday, we go to our small group and we say he is risen. And we cry together about the hard things in our life. And we celebrate with laughter the good things in our life. On Friday, because of the rain and it's finally stopped, we had to, we, 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 postpone Pirate's Cove, and we're going to do it again probably in July sometime. So on Friday, we say, He is risen, and we walk across the street and invite our neighbors to Pirate's Cove with us. And on Saturday, we go down and we help out our Venezuelan families and our Afghanistan families that live in Waterstone House. These are uh, here people in the country uh, legally uh, through asylum, and we help them navigate an aisle at King Supers and how to get their kids in school and how to start learning English and we provide for them because we said he is risen and we go and then on Sunday we come back in here and we say he is risen and then we go running again running again with the joy that's what it looks like as a church here's what it looks like as an individual yesterday on Facebook so one of you sent this to me it's one of our members Lynette Galaseski, I called her and got permission to read this. Lynette, and gave me permission to share this, she has ovarian cancer. It's stage four and her days are short. But she is writing and journaling. And yesterday on Facebook, she posted this, June 17th, 2023. She had come across a picture and the caption of the picture said, If I may touch the hem of Jesus' robe, I will be whole. It's a picture of a story from the Gospels. Here's what Lynette Galaszewski writes. I feel so drawn to the picture and its words. Feels like a promise I am living despite the fact that I am wrapped up tightly in your garments, Jesus. But my body is not being made whole. Just the opposite. It is falling apart. So why does this word still resonate deep down inside of me? Maybe I have come to understand wholeness as something more than just the measure of medical standards. Something much more tangible, even invisible. Soul wholeness, impervious peace, an artesian well of joy. An unbroken awareness of your presence and goodness, Lord, even as I empty my 
colostomy bag or struggle for breath just tying my shoe or squirm at the pressure in my colon as the cancer continues to grow. Peculiar serenity. Maybe that's the wholeness the touch of your garment brings. To onlookers from the outside, the promise seems to fly in the face of reality. No healing is happening in her. But from my vantage point, something miraculous is on the move. A wholeness that makes medical measures superficial. Thank you, Jesus, for that. Boot camp for heaven. As Amy Grant sings, I want to get so close to you that it's no big change on the day Jesus calls my name. Let's pray. Lord and Heavenly Father, Jesus our King, first, I want to create just a moment of space here for your presence to be at work in and through us. And if there's anyone in this room or anyone watching online, Jesus is here and he invites anyone to follow him, to enter his kingdom. He says once, seek first the kingdom of God. He says that if anyone calls upon the name of the Lord, they will be saved. He says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So in this moment, perhaps Jesus, you've never done this before, and he's top, tapping on your shoulder, and he's saying, I'm here, and the kingdom is here, and I'm calling you to enter. All you need say is, Jesus, I believe. Jesus, I'm yours. If you've said that and prayed and, and, and entered God's story and he's moving into your life, the best thing you could do is talk to someone about this decision. There will be people down here in the front after the service. I'm going to ask staff and Stephen ministers, prayer ministers to be down here. If you want to confirm that with a conversation with someone and just a prayer as you get started, come on down to the front. But no matter what, if you're here and you want to follow Jesus, just tell him right now. And Lord, for the rest of us, I would pray that you'd stir up that joy pump in us. As John Donne said in a poem, ravish me. I think like every day we're repenting and restarting. And one of the ways that we can do that, especially if it's been a while where we've been in a, 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 a dry place, is that John Donne prayer, ravish me, ravish me. Break into my hard heart with a sense of the beauty and the holiness of Jesus. Ravish my heart. Maybe some of us need to pray that this morning. Ravish my heart. Lord, forever we are this morning, the kingdom of God is at work. And we pray we would respond to you with our whole heart. We pray, Lord, that you would use Waterstone as we soak up the joy and then seep it out day after day, week after week. Your church on the move.
Come, Lord Jesus, come. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing together our hope in Christ.